2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
3: Welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at BFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Paul Taggart about his new book, Bots and Beasts, What Makes Machines, Animals and People Smart? An expert on MIND considers how animals and smart machines measure up to human intelligence. Octopuses can open jars to get food, and chimpanzees can plan for the future. An IBM computer named Watson won on Jeopardy, and Alexa knows our favorite songs. But do animals and smart machines really have intelligence comparable to that of humans? In Bots and Beasts, Paul Thaggard looks at how computers, bots and animals measure up to the minds of people offering the first systematic comparison of intelligence across machines, animals, and humans.
1: Well, Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you very much.
3: So as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of the recent global pandemic, and one could argue we're still really in the midst of it, I was wondering if you could reflect on how has it affected you and your work, and perhaps some of the main takeaways that you have gathered from the experience? Uh,
1: The pandemic has probably affected me less than most people because I retired from teaching five years ago to be able to write full-time. And so I basically write full-time, and so that hasn't changed that much. One big change, though, is I used to travel a lot. I used to travel almost every month. I used to go to Europe twice a year, and sadly, that's not happened. So I miss those kinds of contacts. But as far as my work, just keeping on writing has been more stable for me than for most people.
3: Did you manage uh, to hone in on new habits during this time, like maybe walking? uh...
1: Well, I already had a pretty good set of habits for exercising every day and writing five mornings a week. And so I basically just kept with those, didn't have to develop any new habits at all. Simply, obviously, I had to develop new habits with respect to things like grocery shopping, which suddenly looked dangerous. And so I've done lots of ways to keep myself safe during this period, but no major changes really to work or exercise or to health.
3: So can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: I'm uh, Canadian. I was born in Saskatchewan in Western Canada, but I've lived a lot of places. I lived in the U.S. for 15 years, and I studied in England for a couple of years as well. And as I mentioned, I've traveled a lot. Uh, But still, the main identity is as Canadian. It's a relatively benign country. doesn't cause a lot of trouble to other countries and is a relatively uh, civilized environment compared to lots of places in the world. Another piece of identity, I guess, is being a philosopher because when I was 15, I was having doubts about my religious upbringing and was shelving books in the public library that are where I worked and came across a book by Bertrand Russell called uh, Why I'm Not a Christian. And so my eyes got very large, <laughs> took the book off the shelf, took it home and read it very quickly, and that got me interested in philosophy. And around the same time, I was shelving books in the career sections of the library and they had a book on being a university professor. And I thought, oh, that sounds cool. So I decided at the age of 15 to become a, a, a philosophy professor. And quite astonishingly, that all worked out.
3: Oh, wow. So you were quite determined uh, with what you wanted to do.
1: Yeah, that, that's, uh, <laughs> I just loved philosophy right from the start, just the raising of really deep general questions about the nature of existence. Uh, and I still find those questions just as fascinating as, as ever. But of course, I took a big turn in, uh, right after I got my PhD when I encountered the field of cognitive science. I realized that the combination of psychology and neuroscience and computer modeling was highly relevant to addressing the philosophical questions that had most motivated me. And so what I've been doing really now for over 40 years is a combination of philosophy with these empirical fields and with computer modeling. So it's been a really rich combination of my philosophy interests that go back from the time I was in my teens to continuing issues that are very much tied in with social issues.
3: So were you always interested in big questions like these?
1: Yeah, that's the big appeal of philosophy. Sciences are wonderful, but you have to go into more and more detail about smaller and smaller things in order to make progress. With philosophy, you can maintain full generality. You can be considered what goes on across different fields, what goes on in psychology and neuroscience and physics and biology. So you get to generalize. But you also get to address, which I think is really important, the normative questions, not just how things are, but how they ought to be. Questions about how society should work and how people should behave individually. So philosophy, I think, is very much tied in with science, but it differs because it's more general and it's more normative. And I'm still fascinated by these very general and very normative questions.
3: And along your journey, what roles did your mentors and also your colleagues uh, play
1: uh, various times, lots of people have influenced me. I guess I don't think I ever quite had a mentor. I've had some good teachers along the way. When I went to Cambridge to do my second BA, I was fortunate that my tutor, just by chance, was Ian Hacking, who's a very distinguished philosopher. And so he definitely had an influence on me. And when I went to Toronto to do my PhD, my supervisor was Bas van Fraassen, another very good philosopher of science. So they definitely had an influence. but. They're not quite at the level of mentorship that I think some people have.
3: And what advice uh, you may have for young aspiring philosophers or students who are still a little bit unsure about uh, choosing philosophy, but might be interested?
1: That's a very difficult choice right now because uh, institutionally, philosophy is in really bad shape. There are very, very few jobs. And so the standard path to becoming a philosophy teacher, a philosophy professor, is to do a PhD and then get a job, but there are almost no jobs. I'll be shrink, shrinking is teaching, and of a philosophy is shrinking in the university. So, I don't think that's a very good path for most people. I think you'd have to be both astonishingly brilliant and astonishingly dedicated to follow that path. What I recommend often to students, like, uh, when I was running the cognitive science program at the University of Waterloo, I had a lot of students who had these kinds of mixed interests. They had a genuine, serious interest in philosophy. But often, given the kind of philosophy I do, it was also tied in with questions in psychology and neuroscience. So my usual advice to them was pursue the scientific field, but maintain your philosophical interests. Because there are a lot more jobs in fields like philosophy, in psychology than there are in philosophy. So that's just a practical one. As far as pursuing philosophy, I've got lots of different kinds of advice. I think that the way that philosophy is often done these days is actually quite pathetic, <laughs> in that it's it's just it ignores the big questions that make philosophy so important. Questions about the nature of knowledge and morality and reality. I that's what philosophy has been important for ever since Plato and Aristotle and going back to Thales. But A lot of philosophy has become a kind of technical field where you play verbal games or you get enmeshed in historical details, and you don't really address these really important questions. So aside from the practical question of getting a job, I think the important thing for pursuing philosophy is don't just get meshed up in what happens to be the literary fad of the day, but really keep an eye on the really big, important questions that's made philosophy so important for thousands of years.
3: So in your latest book, uh, Bots and Beasts, you tackle one of the biggest, uh, big questions in uh, philosophy, really, the intelligence. So can you tell us, how did you come to writing it?
1: It grew out of a course that I taught at the University of Waterloo, like, starting about 10 years ago. For the grad, for the cognitive science program, we wanted to add a new course that Combine the study of humans and the study of machines because ever since cognitive science got started in the 50s, artificial intelligence has been a big part of it. And so the question is well, how uh, that now that machines are becoming more intelligent, how does that relate to the intelligence of humans? But I also, because I had a student who was doing a master's thesis on intelligence in animals, I wanted to bring animals into the picture as well. Uh, so I started this course on intelligence in humans, machines, and animals. It, and it was really fun to teach. I got quite an interesting mix of students. It was half the students seem more interested in machines, and the other half are more interested in animals. But anyway, the, the, the discourse was very interesting. Um, so a few years ago, I decided to turn the thoughts for that course into a book. And actually, it went way beyond the course that I'd been teaching way back then. And so it was really because of that course where I was starting to develop at least some of the initial ideas about comparing humans and machines and animals that I went on to write the book that became Bots and Beasts. Okay,
3: so let's delve into the science part a little bit. So can you define what is intelligence?
1: No, I can't, but no, neither can anyone <laughs> else. Uh, so there are various in, uh, definitions that have been offered, but they don't agree with each other. Uh, there's one recent book that contained about 10 different definitions, and they were all different. And the few that have been adopted are usually kind of vague. It's something about problem solving and learning and other things. But this is not surprising because the quest for definition is based on a misunderstanding of concepts. Uh, my colleagues and I at Waterloo developed a theory of concepts much more tied in with the way that concepts have been studied in psychology that say you don't want to have definitions in terms of necessary and sufficient conditions for what features something has, must have to be uh, up to fall under the concept. Instead, there are three aspects that you can do. You can look at exemplars, which are standard examples of intelligence. And that's really easy to do because we've got good examples of intelligence. We've got... Uh, great scientists like Einstein or Marie Curie. We've got people who have been outstanding in the arts, like uh, Jane Austen. We've got lots of uh, good examples. So that's one start that's better than giving a definition. The second start is to look for features that aren't necessary in sufficient conditions, but nevertheless are distinctive, are characteristic of intelligent people. And that's fairly easy to do too. We can look for things like the ability to solve problems, the ability to learn, the ability to make decisions. Um, So you've got a bunch of those that are important. And finally, the third thing that a concept does for us, especially an important concept like intelligence, is provide explanations. So the concept of intelligence is very useful for explaining why people can do lots of impressive things like uh, build technology or even just get to the next part of the environment. Um, So we've got explanations that operate there. So instead of giving definitions, I prefer to characterize concepts as having these three aspects, namely uh, exemplars, standard examples, typical conditions, and explanations. And in my book, I do all three of these things for the concept of intelligence. And that really provides the basis for the comparison, because you can't compare animals and and machines and humans on just one dimension. But if you have a long list of typical features, as well as the mechanisms that explain those features, then you've got a rich way of making the comparison. So I use a, check, a checklist of 20 different features and mechanisms to do the comparison to get a really rich assessment of how bots and beasts stack up compared to humans.
3: Okay, so you explained uh, the reason why it, it is important to have maybe like a baseline for uh, uh, comparing intelligence across different systems. So can you tell us what kind of characteristics you present in your book?
1: Well, there's a lot of them. I don't want to just read the list, but uh, I can go through, go through some of them. One, two of the central ones, though, are problem solving and learning. So the question is, what problems can people solve and how can they learn to solve a lot better? And there, it's really a huge array. I mean, people are really astonishing intelligence. If have just looked how people have managed to travel all over the world, uh, they've managed to settle all sorts of different environments, dealing with all the different conditions that operate there. And more recently, only in the past 10,000 years, the problem-solving capacity of human has increased dramatically because of the adoption of agriculture, the adoption of more complex societies, introduction of, of written language and mathematics, and then all the tools that eventually turned into science and technology. So the ability of humans to solve problems and to learn to do that better is just amazing. So we can use those kinds of criteria to see, well, how do other kinds of, of, uh, of uh, animals and machines work? Now, some people might say, oh, that, but they don't have intelligence at all. But that's just clearly wrong because artificial intelligence now is really impressive in lots of ways. There are machines that can solve very imp- Impressive problems, including some aspects of natural language processing. You've got driverless cars that can drive from one place to another better than I can. You've got also lots of capacity for learning in those machines. Uh, so that's why we've got great things now like the DeepMind program that can play Go better than any human being. And it didn't get programmed to do that, it learned how to do that by playing with itself. So if you look at problem solving and learning, the current machines are are really impressive. Similarly, animals can do all sorts of problem solving and learning that really has only been appreciated in the last fifty years or so. So, if you look what what monkeys can do, it used to be said that uh, monkeys uh, that no animals besides humans use tools. Well, that's been completely exploded because we know that chimpanzees can use uh, rocks to crack open nuts. We know that. Uh, ravens can use twigs to get their food. And so there's lots of problem solving and learning that goes on in animals as well. The big question is, how do they compare with people? And the answer is, if you look at problem solving and learning in detail, you discover that both machines and animals are really deficient compared to human beings and what we can currently do. That will presumably continue to be true for non-human animals because they don't evolve that rapidly and they don't learn culturally very fast. They do have cultural learning, but it's it's very slow and limited. Uh, on the other hand, who knows with machines because the machines are improving all the time. They're doing things now that no one thought possible 10 years ago, like the self-driving cars and the play program that can play Go. So there are projections that machines will keep on getting smarter and smarter and surpass it. But at least on the analysis of what I've done right now, it's clear that they're way behind humans in our general ability to solve problems and learn.
3: Uh, so do you think it's uh, due to the inherent property of the intelligence of these systems that they cannot be on par on human or to human intelligence? Or is it that humans are putting these constraints on, on intelligence when they try and uh, compare it to human?
1: Yeah, I think the answer is different for for machines versus animals. So animals are definitely constrained by the fact that they just don't have very big brains. Even the closest animals to us like gorillas and, and uh, chimpanzees have brains that are much smaller than ours. And not only, it's not just a matter of size. I think humans have got some capacities that have developed partly through evolution, partly through culture that go beyond anything that the animals are gonna be able to do. A big part of that is called recursion. That's the ability to not just think, but to think about thinking and think about thinking and thinking. So recursion is the ability to have nested kinds of representations. I can think what you're thinking about me thinking about you thinking, but animals don't have the mental capacity, either in language or just in thought in general, to be able to do that. So I think humans have not just a quantitative difference in our ability to have to think with bigger brains, but a qualitative difference that came from the evolution of this capacity for recursion. So that's why I think that animals are never going to catch up with us, even though they keep we keep finding that they can do impressive things. With machines, it's much trickier. So I think there are things that are missing, but machines can do recursion. In fact, there are programming languages that are built on recursion. And so obviously the machines aren't limited in that way, but they're limited in lots of other ways. They're limited in their ability to interact with the world. It's not complete. I mean, there are things like the self-driving cars that interact with the world all the time because they've got cameras, they've got radar, they've got GPS. And so actually their sensor abilities go beyond ours. And so they've got some of that. So they're not, uh, they're not like, uh, uh, disembodied minds anymore because they're interacting with the world. But that's not true of most AI systems. So DeepMind doesn't have an interface with the world, or IBM's Watson doesn't interact with the world, but they could. And so there's no reason why you couldn't take these top AI systems and connect them up with the world through something like that. But it hasn't been done yet. And and there's certainly lots of technical problems in seeing how to do that. Uh, so that's one of the things that's going to be needed for for uh, for the machines to catch up with us. Another thing that machines are going to need to catch up with us is something that I think is really fundamental to human thought, and I think something that animals have, but machines don't yet, which is an understanding of causality. So the machines are perfectly well at noticing regularities in the world, saying, for example, if if something goes up, throws up, gets thrown up, then it falls down. But But there's no machine yet that has an understanding of causality. Why is that? Well, I think it's partly because it's tied in with what I mentioned before, that is our physical interaction with the world. A child's first understanding of causality comes from doing things in the world, even just moving a blanket or moving a mobile or a toy. And so that may partly be innate or or certainly learned very early, but every child and, and, and animals too have an understanding of causality of what it is to work on with the world. So right now there are computer programs that are very verbally adept and having rules such as if you move the door, then it will swing open so it can have that, but it doesn't understand move or swing or open because it doesn't have the perceptual and motor skills that give it a sense of causality. So this is something that I don't think is impossible in machines. It's just that nobody has tried or succeeded in getting this sort of knowledge. So there's some really fundamental things that are missing in current artificial intelligence programs that are a key part of human intelligence.
3: This is really, really interesting, this machine part. And so do you think that also lacking this sense of stake, um, it's also contributing to it? So, for example, a machine doesn't really know that if it's going to lose half of its brain, <laughs> that it's going not, yeah. not, not going to survive, and animals and uh, other biological uh, um, uh, sort of creatures they do understand it. So can we equip them Uh, with this uh, sense of stake?
1: Well, somebody once joked that the problem with computers is they just don't give a damn. <laughs> and and the joke is right, because I mean, part of human intelligence is, is giving a damn, that is having goals, having stakes, as you put it. So we have things we want to accomplish. And part of that motivation just comes out from being a living organism. We need to get food. We need to get water. Uh, we need to interact with other people because humans are inherently social. And so we have all these strong motivations. Machines, on the other hand, in current state, can be given motivations, but they're but they're very abstract. And so you can set a computer, for example, to solve a problem, like doing well at Go or interpreting a text, but it doesn't have the motivation that comes from having a body and wanting to stay alive. And that motivation, I think, is really important. The machines, all the machines we have right now, if you turn them off, they don't care. <laughs> Whereas if you kill a person, well, people will go to great lengths to avoid being eliminated. So you can have kind of simple verbal goals in machines. And that already works because you can tell the driverless car that its job is to get to New York City. And it it can do it actually really quite well, better than I can do it. But it doesn't really care about that. It doesn't have the drive that would uh, get it to work in the world in creative ways to do it. It doesn't really have any motive to be creative. There are machines that are already creative, but they're doing it because they've been programmed to be creative. They don't have the drives that people have to come up with new ideas that are going to be radical and useful.
3: So where do you think this drive comes from? Is it inherently programmable, or we still don't really understand that?
1: Well, where does it come from in humans? I think it's because of the our hu- human nature, which gives us basic needs. So the biological needs are obvious. We need air, we need water, we need food, uh, we need shelter in a cold winter, we need healthcare. So those are the basic biological needs. But there's lots of literature in psychology that supports the existence of other needs that I think are just as much a part of human nature. The three that I found most plausible looking at the psychological literature are autonomy, wanting to be free from control by, by others in the environment, Uh, The second one is relatedness. At the same time as we want to be autonomous, we want to be connected with other people. So the old idea that there was a state of nature in which humans were completely autonomous, that's just nonsense. As long as there have been humans, we've been part of social groups of 100 or 150 people. So humans are inherently social. We need other people to get our lives and to have families and to do the thing. So I think that this kind of relatedness or belongingness is also a major motivation of people. The third motivation that comes out of this literature is called competence or achievement. That is, people like to accomplish things. I think that is part of our, of our nature. People want, like to make new tools or they want to explore new territory. That's how people manage to uh, leave Africa and spread everywhere in the world from Australia to the Arctic. And So we've got this need for competence or achievement that drives us as well. So I think these psychological needs, the need to be free and the need to interact with other people, and the need to achieve, are a major part of what keeps people solving new and more challenging problems. Now, you don't find that in computers because they don't have any of these biological, psychological needs. You can program a computer to say, your goal is to Go down the hall and plug yourself into an electric and recharge your batteries, but it doesn't care about that. It doesn't really have a need or a drive to do that. So I don't think the current technology allows us to do that. You'd have to find a different way to motivate a computer so that it would have the same kinds of strong needs and drives that are natural to human beings.
3: Yeah, this is really uh, fascinating because when you drill down uh, uh, to it, it's uh, really maybe trying to find out what are the basis for motivations of humans themselves, maybe looking at the deficiency of these, for example, and then maybe we can uh, sort of extrapolate from there.
1: Well, that would be one way to do it. And so you can ask, what would it take to make computers as creative and as driven as as people? But the ethical question, which also motivates a lot of the last chapters of bots and beasts. Do we want to do this? <laughs> so I think it's a really good question um, to raise just how much smarter do we want computers to get? Some people think that, oh, they're already so smart that it's only a small amount of time before they'll catch up to us. I don't think that's true because the strong differences that I've identified between human intelligence and machine intelligence suggest that no, it's going to be quite a long time, which is good because it gives us time to think through these questions. So I'm not sure I want machines to have these kinds of drives and needs because I want, what I care about most of all, of course, is the well-being of human beings. I mean, not just Canadians or not just by family, but people all over the world. We're all the same. They're all the same species. And I don't want us to be caught up to by machines because that may not be in our interest. Machines, for example, may just find us annoying. We would, be, they, we would be in the way. This is a long way off because, as I said, they don't have uh, these kinds of drives yet. But if they had developed it, say in 100 years, uh, humans might simply be an annoyance. And so they could get rid of us at that point because they'd be powerful enough to do this. So the ethical question I addressed in the last two chapters of the book is how should we handicap machines to keep them from getting where we are. And so quite frankly, I don't want machines to become conscious. I don't want them to have emotions. I don't want them to have drives. I don't want them to have needs because there's absolutely no guarantee to think that if they had their own needs, they would be in the service of human needs. So I want ethics to work in the service of humans, not in the service of these uh, machines who we can't control in the long run.
3: Absolutely. And these are the questions that you need to ask quite early on as well, isn't it? Not after you develop these uh, systems.
1: Uh, Absolutely. As as many people in the field of AI have recognized over the last 10 years, we need to address these questions right now. They're already very live issues, such as uh, uh, robot weapons. There are now weapons like um, drones that can operate almost autonomously? Do we really want to have bombs and machine guns out in the world making their own decisions about who they're going to kill? I don't think so, because I don't think any current machines are capable of operating with the kind of ethical reasoning that comes naturally to human beings. Why is it natural to human beings? Well, it's because we care about each other. It's not just that we can reason logically you can already do that in machines to a certain extent. But a big part of ethics, I think, is not just abstract principles of the sort that philosophers have proposed. I think it's a matter of caring. It's a matter of emotion, as philosophers like David Hume and some, uh, and more recently, feminist philosophers have argued. So I think emotions and caring are a huge part of the development of ethics. And machines Even if they can handle abstract principles, aren't going to have these kinds of emotions and caring and empathy, which is a big part of what makes people ethical when we are. So there's a big problem there of figuring out how autonomous machines like the increasingly popular robot weapons can be. I don't think they should be autonomous there at all. These decisions should be made by human beings who've got the capacity for ethical reasoning that's based on actually caring for other people.
2: Slash NBN50 to get 50% off. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Across
0: America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
3: So along your journey, can you describe a few examples of perhaps animal intelligence that fascinate you the most and you think that can teach us quite a few things about it?
1: I didn't used to be much interested in animals. I've never had pets and so I was never as fascinated by them as most people. But increasingly over the years, I've realized oh, there's a lot more going on in animal minds than I realized. So my student uh, uh, did a, a wonderful thesis on, uh, Ashley Kiefner did a wonderful thesis on thinking by birds and whether birds, how birds think about the minds of other birds. And so that was a really Open it because I never—I always thought that birds were kind of dumb. We use the expression in English "bird-brained" to suggest that someone's not very smart. But Ashley dug up all sorts of fascinating findings about just how smart animals like crows and ravens and uh, jays and parrots actually are. And so that was really an eye-opener for me. The other big eye-opener for me is that my uh, uh, romantic partner Lorette has cats. And so that was really my first detailed exposure to pets because I never had any. And the cats have been really <laughs> educational in themselves. So uh, one of the chapters, one of the sections in the book is whether cats and dogs can be jealous. Uh, and I got the idea for this because uh, Lorette had had her cat, uh, uh, Jana for a long time, a couple of years, when she got another cat named Pixie. And Pixie was uh, or is very, very aggressive, and uh, likes a lot of attention. Jana uh, is more laid back, but when Lorette would pay attention to Jana, Pixie would come up and shoo Jana away. Uh, so Pixie seemed to be trying to get Lorette's attention and take it away from Jana. And so the question that occurred immediately to me was, "Wow, Pixie looks like she's being jealous. Is it possible for a cat to have as as sufficient a complicated an emotion as being?" As being as being jealous. Well, there's a prior question, which is: Can animals have emotions at all? Now, Descartes thought no; he thought they were basically just automata—they're just machines. But I think now there's loads of evidence that many animals do have emotions, at least simple ones. So, simply, obviously, feeling pain or feeling anger or fear or curiosity—I think those are operate. But could an animal have a property as complicated as being jealous? Well, there you've got to look at evidence. You've got to look at experiments because you can't tell just by observing. And people have a tendency to project all of their own complicated thoughts onto their pets. I think it's really kind of delusional sometimes that that they think, oh, my cat really misses me because it knows I'm going to away for a while. But I don't I don't think cats have got the ability to do that. But the jealousy is more basic. Well as far as cats go, there's not a lot of evidence about whether they're jealous or not, but it turned out, I discovered, that there's lots of experiments that have been done on dogs. And dogs do seem to display lots of the same kinds of jealousy. If you've got a dog and its owner is paying attention to another dog, then the dog will try to intervene. The owner's dog will try to intervene. Is that jealousy? Well, here, there have been some very clever experiments done to rule out alternative interpre- interpretations. and. looking at those experiments in detail, I became convinced that, yes, um, dogs can be jealous. And then by analogy, well, maybe cats can be jealous as well. So that's one of the many fascinating questions that gets raised when you try to figure out how many of these complicated mental properties of human beings can be projected farther down the animal kingdom.
3: Oh, yeah, for sure. And uh, with cats well, they're human overall lords anyway, so I'm not sure when we'll we'll, uh, try and figure their intelligence out.
1: Well, I like the remark that uh, dogs have masters, but cats have staff. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, for sure.
3: So uh, what about artificial intelligence? Of course, you use this term intelligence, but is it actually accurate term? And do we normally use it in correct way? when we describe artificial intelligence?
1: Well, language is flexible and and and, and it changes over time and we expand uh, usage depending on what the evidence says. And so I think the current evidence says, provides us lots of reason for saying that machines and non-human animals are intelligent because they can do a lot of the things that fall under that heading in human beings, like perceiving the world and making decisions and solving problems and learning about it. And so, all of these things apply there, uh, or almost all of them. A big question uh, that's open is whether we can extend ideas about consciousness to machines and to animals. So I think there's good reason to think that there are many animals today that are conscious, like the cats and dogs that feel jealousy, they're feeling an emotion, but not to extend consciousness to machines yet. I don't think there are any machines that have been developed that have consciousness. But still, Lots of intelligence doesn't involve consciousness. In fact, a lot of the things we do most effectively, what we do when we're not conscious of it. So if you're playing basketball really well, you're making all sorts of complicated decisions. Or if you're typing or driving a car for that matter, you're often doing it best when you're not aware of what you're doing because you learned how to do it so well that you don't have to think about it. So the fact that machines aren't conscious doesn't mean that they're not intelligence. And if you look at some of the things that computers can do better than people. Right now, I think that really is a sign of intelligence. I mentioned playing Go, that but the programs from DeepMind can also solve deep protein folding problems that humans haven't been able to solve. Uh, there are different kinds of reasoning about medicine that IBM Watson does better than people. Obviously, if you look at something like translation, that's a highly intelligent activity. Very few people can work in more than one or two or three languages. Google Translate, does uh, a differing degree of success with over 100 languages, some of which it does really quite well. And so I don't think there's any question at all whether intelligence now applies to human beings. We have to expand the meaning of that in the same way that uh, uh, humans once were were slow to think about, well, <laughs> human males were once slow to think about whether women could be intelligent, which was ridiculous. But the, the evidence requires that kind of extension. So the same thing applies to machines and non-human animals today.
3: Uh, do you think our ability to find human-like intelligence in animal in animals is constrained by the methods we use?
1: Yes, because we tend to use just observation, and that can that can lead us astray. So I mentioned before the dangers that people attribute overly complex thoughts to their their um, to their pets. But this is where you really need to have controlled experiments where you can rule out alternative uh, interpretations. So some people have said, oh, animals don't have emotions. They're simply engaging in rewards. Uh, they just care about reward behavior. You have a kind of behaviors to count. But I, 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 I took that as a serious argument. Then you can do experiments and observations that suggest, no, there's more going on than just seeking reward. So you need to do really careful experiments to tease out these different hypotheses. But once you do that, then you can make the attributions. On the other hand, you want to really steer away from over-attributions that often occur. One of the sections in my book disagrees with recent claims that bacteria are conscious, that consciousness goes all the way down to the level of single-cell organisms. I don't think there's any basis for that at all. I'm perfectly happy to think that behaviors that are quite complex, such as doing things to avoid pain, which you find even in fish, Are signs of consciousness. So I'm I'm perfectly happy to project consciousness down to birds and mammals and fish and maybe reptiles and maybe insects. I'm not quite sure about that. But the idea that consciousness operates in single cell organisms or in rocks strikes me as completely ridiculous. So we need to have a careful way of doing that. In my book, I provide something I call the attribution procedure. That is, it's a, it's a step-by-step procedure to accumulate evidence, evaluate different hypotheses, and on the basis of that, decide whether we should attribute an aspect of mind, like intelligence or consciousness, to other entities like machines and animals.
3: And in your opinion, is achieving the human-like intelligence in artificial systems an attainable goal? Maybe not for the near future, but for a very far future. <laughs>
1: There, I would just say, I don't know, Uh, because it's really, it's not, I don't think it's a conceptual question. There are philosophers who have given a prior arguments that machines could never be intelligent. I don't think any of those arguments are any good. But it's a huge technological problem. So are questions such as, are humans ever going to leave our solar system? Well, I don't know. There's not an absolute reason why we couldn't, but there's gargantuan technological problems to be solved in doing it. So I think right now we're missing some fundamental ideas about how human intelligence works that are impediments to figuring out how to make machines as smart as us. So I think it's a technological question, but it's also an ethical question. The ethical question is uh, if we could make them as intelligent as us, and I don't know whether we could or not, but if we could, would we want to? And for the argument I gave you earlier, I think the answer to the normative ethical question is no. So let's not do that. (laughs) Let's figure out what we can do that they can't, things like causality and consciousness and emotions and ethical reasoning. And let's just not do that. Let's not give that to them. Fortunately, the current technology isn't such that I think they can evolve it themselves. The people at DeepMind think uh, they just published an article in the top AI journal called Reward is Enough. And they think they've already got enough power in their very impressive deep learning and reinforcement learning capabilities to capture all of intelligence. Fortunately, I think they're just wrong about that. They're missing five or six really important things about intelligence that's gonna keep their systems from ending up as intelligent as human beings. So I'm I'm glad about that. But on the other hand, I don't know that people should be working hard to add all these other things. I'd rather see, in fact, the industry or the governments collectively decide to handicap the development of artificial intelligence so we don't have to worry about them, in fact, becoming our dominators.
3: And thinking outside Earth for a little bit. So do you think our understanding and our conceptualization of intelligence um, is um, relevant for us recognizing in case we find some uh, extraterrestrial intelligence uh, in our space programs?
1: Okay. Well, now we're moving into the era of thought experiments, which I tend to tend to avoid. I actually, my hunch is that we may be alone in the universe as intelligent. Now, people do all sorts of calculations to such because now we're discovering all sorts of planets that are like Earth, and so you think that the odds are someplace that that intelligence could have evolved. But I actually think that our intelligence is a kind of fluke. Not life, I'm quite prepared to believe that there's life on other planets uh, because that's a fairly simple thing to do. You just mix some chemicals together and eventually you get, you get uh, something like uh, amino acids and you get DNA and then you get cells. So I'd be very surprised if there weren't single cell organisms elsewhere in the universe. But uh, other things that were important for the development of humans seem to be much more accidental. One is the development of eukaryotes. Eukaryotes are more complicated kinds of animals where, that, that, where you end up with multiple cells. And that started when one bacteria somehow incorporated another bacterium, and you ended up with the cells within cells. And that made the energy production much more efficient. And so that seems to have happened in human evolution only once, as far as I can tell from the... Biological uh, evidence. So I think that may have been just a big fluke. Other flukes have happened. For example, uh, asteroid hit the Earth and dinosaurs went extinct. M- mammals at that time were just fairly insignificant. But once the once the dinosaurs were out of the way, then mammals went on the path to developing larger and larger brains, and eventually we got primates, and eventually we got humans. But that may be kind of fluky. Another thing that's not understand right now that may have been fluky is something happened in the human brain around 50 to 100,000 years ago. The brains were already getting bigger and bigger, and cooking helped out a lot. When people discovered cooking, then we could have bigger brains because you had energy support for that. But there were already big brains 100,000 years ago, but there were a lot of things that humans weren't doing then. They weren't, for example, doing cave art. They weren't uh, exploring nearly as much but sometimes around 50 to 100,000 years ago something happened to human brains that made it capable of language and art and all the kinds of creativity that eventually produced civilization what seems to have happened then in fact connected with what i said before was the development of recursion the ability to have not just thoughts but thoughts about thoughts about thoughts and it's still an open question what happened at that point to make recursive language and thought and creativity but that happened once and it took a long time it took billions of years for for life to get to that point so my hunch frankly right now at least my guess it's not something there's a lot of evidence for is that there may simply be no other aliens anywhere in the universe so i'm not i don't spend much time worrying about whether they exist because frankly i th- suspect that they don't if on the other hand some entity showed up and it was able to do, the things that impress us in human intelligence, like solve problems and learn and interact with this environment and make complex decisions and report having emotional consciousness, well, then I'd be convinced that it was intelligence. So I think my attribution procedure applies perfectly well to aliens. It's just that I'm not expecting to encounter any.
3: Okay, so coming back to Earth, if we reflect a little bit on a wider society, So what are are the implications of defining and understanding intelligence for, for our society, basically?
1: I think it's important for lots of reasons. One unfortunate part of the history of psychology is that psychology got way too stuck on the narrow notion of IQ, the idea of intelligence quotients. And so it's really unfortunate, there's still psychologists who will repeat what was been said in the 20s that intelligence is what IQ measures. I think that's just crazy because there's lots of aspects of intelligence that go beyond IQ. And Psychologists like uh, Robert Sternberg have pointed this out and Howard Gardner. And So intelligence partly involves social matters. A big part of intelligence is understanding how to get on with other people. That is understanding their emotions, understanding your emotions. So emotional intelligence, social intelligence was really important. That's not, not just the, the simple kinds of, of verbal, mathematical ability that makes people good at IQ tests. Another thing that's really important aspect of intelligence is kinesthetic abilities. What makes you, for example, good at sports or, or good at uh, working in the environment? So I think that's also a big part of intelligence. So we need a, a broader understanding of intelligence. When you do that, then I think it has social implications. Uh, it's a, a really sad part of the history of IQ is that it's often been used for racist purpose. It's been used to argue that people of particular races or ethnic backgrounds are inherently inferior, and that's used to justify inequalities. Because the implicit argument, it's not usually said out loud, but it's, it's, it's there in the background that, oh, the reason why there's inequality in the world between different races or different parts of the world is, is the fact, uh, to put it crudely, white people are smarter. Uh, but it was never based on any good evidence. It's usually based on this narrow notion of intelligence and on narrow measures of intelligence. So I think one of the social advantages is of, of a broader notion of intelligence is it completely undercuts all these... Uh, racist arguments that have been used to justify inequality.
3: And what uh, sort of immediate or near future steps um, us uh, individuals, uh, governments, or researchers can take um, so we treat the intelligent systems, whether it's animals or artificial intelligence, within our ethical and moral values?
1: Well, I think there's a bunch of things can be done, but it's different between for machines versus animals so the question is about animals is are we ethically obliged to them, given that they aren't to, but i I think some people want to say oh they're they're ethically equal to us because they can feel pain they think that just having having that that is enough for moral standing. I don't think that's right because that's evidence for some moral standing, but it doesn't make them equal to us there's degrees of suffering that people are capable of because we can not only feel pain, we can think about feeling pain and we can think about thinking about feeling pain so we can suffer a lot more. So I don't think animals are equal to us morally, but I think they're morally relevant. I think it's wrong to cause pain um, to animals. And so that has big consequences for things like uh, eating meat, which I haven't done since... Well, for a long time. Uh, so th- there's definitely ethical consequences there. With respect to machines, it's different because right now there are no machines toward which we have ethical obligations because they don't have emotions, they don't have consciousness, they don't have the simplest kinds of, of suffering. Uh, so but there there's the question more, the long-term one, which is do we want to have machines around that can suffer? I think the answer is, well, no, let's make sure that doesn't happen. So the ethical question is let's make sure that there isn't the development of machines toward which we might have ethical obligations.
3: And what kind of discoveries about yourself or society along your journey to writing your book, Bots and Beasts, surprised you the most?
1: Oh, a lot of things surprised me. Uh, When I started it, I think I was more inclined to see uh, machines as being closer to humans than they are. But once I came up with my list of 12 features and eight mechanisms, and I I give a report card to indicate how close they are, I realized just how far off human-level AI is. I was open to that being a possibility. But when I actually worked out the checklist, the 20-point checklist, it became really clear that full human-level AI is much farther off than I previously thought it was. So that was a surprise. Uh, Another surprise connected with what I was saying about the cats was just realizing how close on a lot of ways the animals are to human intelligence, that in fact they can solve much more complicated problems and they're capable of lots of kinds of learning that I didn't realize. At the same time, I realized that there are limits to that. They can't do complicated causal learning the way the humans can. They don't have the ability that humans have to go beyond what we observe. So humans not only observe things, we also can explain what's beyond that. This really started uh, probably when recursion became possible. We could go beyond what you observe and think about not just people, how people are behaving, but why they're behaving they are. We can attribute mental states to, to other people. Uh, and so now that was the basis for all of science. So if you look at physics and biology and chemistry, we're often talking about things like atoms and quarks and uh, genes that you can't observe but humans quite naturally go beyond what we observe to do that. No no animal besides humans can do that. And machines don't do it very well because they don't have good ability to generate these abstract concepts tied in with causal explanations. So I, I guess I'm more impressed by humans as a result of writing Bots and Beasts than I was before. I put it in a <laughs> sentence. Uh, humans are smarter than you think. <laughs> it's certainly one result of the book was realizing, well, they're smart. Thma- they're smarter than I used to think.
3: And if you could have any sort of intelligence uh, um, anywhere in the universe, or make any kind of intelligence, what do you think that would be?
1: That's really interesting. Uh, what would be the next kind of stage? Um, well there are some limits to human intelligence. Uh, so, so a couple of the correlates of, of, of intelligence are speed of processing and size of working memory. And uh, the peop- young people listening to this will be happy to hear that both of these peak around the age of mid-20s. So if you're in your, your 20s or early 30s, you're as smart as you're going to get, and, and it's going to get worse. <laughs> and if you get and you get to be in your 60s or 70s, you're going to start to see a drop-off in both these things, speed of processing and, uh, and size of working memory. Now, humans have developed all sorts of technologies to help with that. We use computers to speed up various kinds of thinking. We use all sorts of auxiliary devices from writing things down to putting things in computer databases to do that. But it would be amazing if there could be a more... R- rich interface between human brains and these kind of computational tools so that our speed of processing and our working memory capacity could work not just in the awkward way it does right now by having to interact with computers in the awkward way that we do, but but through much better interfaces. There are already lots of ways in which people are exploring how brains can control computers and, and vice versa. So, wouldn't it be amazing if, for people in general, and especially for older people where working memory and speed of processing are declining, you could have these auxiliary ways in that your thinking could be enhanced through using what are often the faster speed of processing and the faster memory capacity of computers. At that point, you'd have something that has the advantages of humans, such as our ability to use our bodies and our emotions and interact with the world. And if you could combine that with some of the technologies that are already available, both in computers and in human computer actions, then you would really have a hybrid system with a level of intelligence that hadn't been possible before. Now, that make it might possible to deal with some of the horrible problems that humans are now facing, problems like pandemics and climate change and, and evil leaders in, in political organizations. So there are problems right now that are really stretching the limits of human intelligence. I mean, there's lots of smart people working on, problems like the pandemic and the, and the, uh, and climate change, but they're really hard climate. The pandemic, sorry, the, the pandemic, I think is gonna be resolved in a, in a year or two, but the climate change problem is just gonna get worse and worse for the next few decades. And it's good that really smart people are thinking about that, but it would be really useful if we could augment human intelligence not by machines by themselves, because I don't think that's going to be possible within the time that we're talking about, the next 50 years, but by interacting with human brains and increasing our speed of processing and our our working memory capacity to deal with problems that right now seem to be too much for humans to be able to handle.
3: Oh yes, that's an excellent point. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, so can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project?
1: Well, I've got two things that are subsequent to Bots and Beasts. Bots and Beast is going to be out in a few weeks. So that's very exciting. But and since then, I've written another book on balance. <laughs> uh, it's going to be published next spring by Columbia University Press. And it does two things. It looks at the neuroscience of balance, explaining how it is that we can walk without falling over and, and what happens when we lose our balance through problems like vertigo and dizziness, which are really quite common. But it also looks at balance as a metaphor. So in the pandemic, people have been talking all the time about how do we balance lives and livelihoods? That is, how do we, at the same time, try to avoid the pandemic and avoid people dying, but also try to have our social and economic lives? So that's also a balancing problem. So I talk about both literal and metaphorical balance from the point of view of uh, cognitive neuroscience. So that's the book that will be out in the spring. Uh, maybe you'll interview me again. You ask lots of interesting questions. <laughs> so that's that's the project that's also pretty much done to be out in the spring. But what I'm working on now is related to a bunch of the questions you were asking earlier about social impact, and it also ties in with intelligence. I'm working on a book on misinformation. Because if you look at these social problems that I mentioned, problems like the pandemic and... Uh, climate change and political conspiracies and inequality, you find one of the biggest problems right now is the spread of misinformation. The United States right now is the first place to really develop good vaccines, but in the world they rank something like 36 in getting people vaccinated because of political conspiracies and misinformation. Absolutely atrocious how people have been lied to and been tricked into not getting vaccinated, even though it's fairly effective. And misinformation has also been a big problem with climate change. So scientists have not been able to convince politicians to act in the way that's absolutely necessary because there have been oil companies and other politicians who've been misinforming the populace about the drastic steps that need to be taken to deal with climate change. So I'm writing now a, a, a systematic treatment from the point of view of cognitive science and philosophy of how misinformation spreads, how it works, and how it can be stopped. So that's the project that will keep me busy for the next year or two.
3: Oh, this sounds super exciting. I hope you come back and uh, talk to us about uh, about them once they're published.
1: That would be wonderful. It's been great talking with you.
3: So where can our listeners find more information about your work and your current book, which is Bots and Beasts?
1: The easiest way is to go to my website, which is easy to see. It's just paulthegard.com. And so that's got information about Bots and Beasts and uh, and um and it will have mention of the new books as they come along. But it's also got links to lots of the other articles that I've written, as well as to my, uh, my blog. If for readers who want a kind of lighter view of the kinds of work I do, I do a blog for Psychology Today, which has had more than 100 posts. And so it tends to put in fairly popular form a lot of the ideas that I've been developing that were relevant to intelligence, relevant to balance, and increasingly relevant to misinformation. But the easy way to find that is just in the link through paulthegard.com.
3: Well, thank you so much for joining me today and in this discussion without filling me with existential dread about artificial intelligence.
1: Good. I think that one you don't have to worry about for a few decades, but I think you probably should have dread about problems like climate change. (laughs) (laughs) Or octopuses. No, octopuses aren't a threat to us. They're just, just, <laughs> just kind of funny looking. Now, and we don't have to worry about the other animals or machines. What we have to worry about is what humans are doing to our world right now.